Hello, survivalists. This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by my sister and favorite person, Tessa King. She really needs no introduction. I mean, let's be real. (laughs) I'm pretty great. (laughs) Uh, First off, I want to say I'm so sorry about my spelling errors that occurred occasionally in the, well, the spelling errors that just occasionally occur or all the time occur in the title or description for our podcast episodes. Um, I could not spell boars for the wild boars to save my life, and I need to stop writing the episode info when I'm exhausted, or maybe I need to go back to the first grade. I'm not sure. What do you think? I think it was a Freudian slip in that you were really trying to tell me that I'm boring <laughs> instead of talking about boars, the animal. So I'm going to tell I'm the offended. Whole, I'm going to tell the whole world. Excuse me. I'm the world. The world. I'm going to tell them that you're boring. Well. So, um... I just want to start by saying, please write a positive review on Apple Podcasts by going to the list of episodes and to rate and review. Doing this helps us because ratings draw more listeners and get our word out. We'd appreciate it greatly. So today we will be telling Joe Simpson and Simon Yates stories, or story, I should say. They were adventurous young British mountaineers who sought to conquer the west face of Ciela Grande in the Peruvian Andes in 1985. They crushed their goal, and everything was going seemingly well on the descent. At approximately one-third of the way down, there was an accident in which Joe broke his leg, a death sentence for both men, and the beginning of an even larger nightmare. First, before we dig into our story, I'm going to give you a little background about Joe Simpson and Simon Yates. Joe Simpson was born in 1960 in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. His father was a Scottish. His father was Scottish and his mother was Irish. His father was stationed there when he was in the British Army. So he had a really sweet accent is what I'm getting from this. Yeah, you know, he mostly has a British-sounding accent. (sighs) Boring. (laughs) Sorry, England. (laughs) So when he was young, he traveled a lot, um, as one would typically do when you have a parent in the military, and he started climbing in Yorkshire. He became inspired to climb after reading a book called The White Spider, a book about the first ascent up the north face of the Eiger, an extremely challenging climb in Switzerland. So anyway, he ended up studying world theater and drama, and eventually majored in philosophy and English. Simon Yates was born in 1963 in Leicestershire and went to college in Sheffield, England, where he studied biochemistry, which I think anyone who studies that's got to be pretty smart. Just saying. Mm -hmm. He did rope work to make ends meet, and so the definition of rope work from Wikipedia is rope access or individual, sorry, rope access or industrial climbing, is a form of work positioning, initially developed from techniques used for climbing and caving, which applies to practical rope work to allow workers to access difficult-to-reach locations without the use of scaffolding, cradles, or aerial work platform. The two men first met in 1984 at Chamonix at a campsite full of British climbers. Chamonix is a resort area near the junction of France, Switzerland, and Italy. They had quite a lot of climbing experience despite their young ages. They were part of this alpine club, which was really exclusive. You had to have begged a certain number of peaks and first ascents to get into it. 
And they spent all their summers climbing. Um, and sometimes they climbed more than some climbers would climb in 10 years in just the summertime. Mm -hmm. So they had a lot of experience. They decided to climb the Siula Grande because it was the last mountain in a string of mountains that had never been climbed, but it had been attempted many times. And you said this was the 80s, right? Mm-hmm, 1985. They'd heard of this mountain from a friend who'd seen it in the mid-70s and said that it would be, quote, a good day out. Oh, that's it? Yeah. <laughs> Simpson stated, my feeling was, well, we'll just do it. We're better. Sounds like a cool time, bruh. So he was 25, Joe Simpson was 25, and Simon Yates was 21 when they did this climb. Yeah, that is very young. Just for some perspective. But again, they had a lot of experience, a lot more than most climbers do at that age. So they thought it was doable. So the Siula Grande, again, is a mountain in Peru in the Waiwash mountain range in the Peruvian Andes. It is 20,814 feet high. It's in a remote area, and to access the base camp, it took two days of travel from the last road. They traveled with a man they met in Lima named Richard Hawking, a non-climber they invited to come with them to watch over their stuff while they're climbing. Oh. Yeah, that way their tents aren't just, like, blowing around down there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The team of two decided to climb the western aspect. They climbed alpine-style meaning that they carried the smallest amount of food and gear to reach the summit in a single push. They had no contact with the world and no way of being rescued if things went poorly. Simpson stated, if you're going to do that kind of climbing, at some point you're going to have to rely wholly on your partner. I think that this is the crux, if you will, of the situation. I mean, there's lots of cruxes in the story, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But everything... Everything about this is one of the biggest commitments. It's basically a life or death commitment. And the second that you pack your backpack and start heading up, you're already just risking so much already because you only have so much stuff, which means you can't stop because there's only a limited amount of time until you run out of food and fuel and whatever else you need. Mm -hmm. So how long do they expect this to take them? My guess, just based upon how long it took in general, is probably about four days. So not a whole long time. So on the first day, June 5th, they had good weather. They were really happy with the distance they had accomplished. And on day two, the weather took a horrible turn for the worse. It was blowing snow and much below freezing temperatures. So the last section was a few hundred feet of unstable powder snow without anchors. So basically, if one of them falls, they both fall because they're roped together. Mm -hmm. And the wind is just blowing and crazy howling, and they can't communicate with one another either, which is something that I thought about a lot of times. Tug and Morse code? (laughs) (laughs) Really. I mean, I don't know how they communicated. So the last section of this climb was 200 feet, And it took them five to six hours to make 200 feet. That is insane. And it's basically a vertical wall. Yeah, that's what I was imagining. They kept going on beyond dark. And my assumption is that they were doing this back to that alpine climbing because they only have a limited amount of time before they run out of supplies and they need to make every single minute count. 
Simpson was getting very cold, waiting for Yates to go up ahead of him. Um, he was just standing there while he was waiting for his partner to go up, and then he would go up after him. They eventually built a snow cave at the end of that day. On day three, in the morning, they had good weather, and they were able to see where they were trying to climb. Simpson said that the climbing was the most dangerous climbing he had ever done. And this is coming from someone who's climbed a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, but nobody has accomplished this. So, yeah. I mean, if you don't expect that, I don't know what you're thinking. I know that's the thing. I guess you just you just think that maybe your skills are a lot better than theirs or I don't know. I mean, I can't say. You're you're hopeful cuz you're overconfident young? 21 to 25 year old maybe. Maybe so. I don't they're really optimistic. Yeah. So they said it was a nightmare because it was a bunch of fine powder and snow falling down. There were cornices everywhere, which we talked about before. Yeah, danger zone. Yep, and there were moraines. And a moraine is material left behind by a moving glacier. And so this material is usually soil and rock. Just as a river carries along a debris and silt, um, glaciers do the same thing. And they transport dirt and boulders that build up to form moraines. So none of that stuff is stable. You Mm -hmm. know, they had never seen these conditions before in the Alps. They said the snow would just fall off the slope if it was 40 degrees or more. And this climbing was both precarious and unnerving. And one thing that I thought was pretty chilling is that they were scared that if they got to a pass where they couldn't climb over, like if they got to a point where there was no further going in the direction they wanted to go, that they would not be able to down climb. Oh, no. Yeah, you can go up, but you can't go back down in exactly. the same spot. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes my stomach churn just thinking about it. Amongst all of the other things that we've already talked about that make my stomach churn when just thinking about it for two seconds. All of these stories. <laughs> um, they could see a 4,000-foot drop off below them. So probably a big sheer wall. They finally got off the west face to the north ridge around 2 p.m., And it was still good weather at that point. So they're on this big ridge. It's almost like a large saddle. And they walked up that to the top of the mountain. Simpson has said that he doesn't particularly like summits because 80% of accidents happen on the descent. He and Yates started the descent on the north ridge, and they thought it was going to be the easiest, most straightforward route, which was more difficult than they originally anticipated. It turned out to be horrendous. They had decided to descend a coal, which is a passageway between Sula Grande and Europaya, another adjacent mountain, and rappel down a smaller section of the face so they didn't have this 4,000-foot face that they had to descend down. Then, unexpectedly, the weather changed, as it does. And these huge clouds came in from the east. And within 30 minutes, they were lost in a total, complete whiteout awful plus again no communication how are you communicating with your partner and this is just bringing me back to when we talked about everest where these guys are climbing in the 80s and so weather forecasting and all of that is not the same as it is now when people climb mountains like this they really have a better idea of what they're doing but in the 80s well and you might have some weather updates like access the technology sure. would allow that for you. Cause the thing is the weather in places like this, it can change. Sure thing. And, and just... same thing with any big mountain like that. Mm-hmm. So they ended up getting lost. 
they're lost in this blowing snow. They have no idea where yeah, they're going. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> and time is of the essence again. They have got to get off this Yeah, they thing. don't have enough gear. There's a slight break in the clouds. And Yates saw the ridge. So he thought, I'm going to make the best of this opportunity and get back up to where I have some perspective and get a bearing on where I am. And he was leading. So he's walking along and then he walks over the top of a cornice. Oh, and no. he, he falls down and all the snow and ice just land on top of him. Everything's, you know, crazy. But then thankfully he doesn't go very far. And when everything, when the snow settles, he, they're on the ridge. They were on the ridge at the point at which he stepped on that cornice. They were still 20,000 feet from the base at that point. So yeah. they have, a, I mean, basically they've, they've gone hardly, nothing. They've, yeah, they've basically gone nowhere from the summit. Yeah, because it's just over 20,000, right? That's what you said. Yep. So at nightfall on the descent on this this first evening, the climbers were preparing water for drinking and they ran out of fuel. And this is the only way to get water. It took up to an hour to melt enough snow for both of them to have one cup of water to drink. And... They were mentioning at that at high altitude and all the climbing that they were doing and the exertion, they needed each five to six liters of water per day to maintain hydration. So running out of fuel is extremely dangerous. They sheltered in a bivouac. I hope I said that word right. And in the morning of June 8th, the fourth day, they resumed their descent. Wait, do you want to explain what that is for those who don't know? Good call. So it's, it's, um, it's a shelter and you can see some of these photos online. There's varying, there's, there's different types out there, but it's basically a hanging tent. So like a tent that hangs off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't know what kind of, um, I don't know that they were on a face at this point. Mm-hmm. They could have been on more of a ledge. And that was just what they had. Yeah. June 8th, the fourth day, they were, they resumed their descent, hoping the worst was behind them. They felt pretty confident it was. They defended the worst part of the ridge. They thought it was in the bag. They're like, we're good. We're going back to the base camp. As they were going along, Simpson was in the lead. At approximately 11 a.m., when they are one-third of the way down the face, there was some slack between the men, and Simpson was concerned about the potential risk of making a mistake in a treacherous spot, a vertical wall dissecting a ridge. He thought to himself, do not fall here. And maybe, and maybe this was like a premonition, but, um, the slack in the rope was the big thing. He hammered his ice axe into the ice at the top. And then he used his other axe to go into the ice with intention of lowering, lowering himself down. So he, they've got two axes in their hands and they're kind of going one over the other, mm-hmm. almost like crawling. And when he put that second axe into the ice, he heard this sound. It sounded wrong. And he pulled his axe out. No, no, no. And then the whole ice wall just disintegrated. Oh, no, that's horrible. And he fell 20 feet down. And this crash down to the the base that he landed on caused his knee to lock up. And his crampons maximized the force of the fall. And it punched his tibia up into his femur. And it carried it all the way through his knee joint. Oh, my gosh. He said, quote, I tore my anterior cruciate ligament, damaged my peroneal nerve, 
destroyed two menisci in my knee and fractured my heel and ankle. The pain was excruciating. I can only imagine. So he's just writhing around in pain. When Yates caught up to Simpson, the expression on his face was telling when he discovered Simpson's injuries, leaving Simpson an invalid. When before, at that point, they had been working, contributing partners, Simpson said it was a look of shock and desperation and terror, knowing that Simpson's fall significantly reduced the likelihood that either man would survive. And Yates gave him a couple Tylenol. That's all they had. I'm sure that's all they had, yeah. This fall, this injury was the equivalent of a death sentence. They still had 3,000 feet to go. Simpson later said, he should have left me as soon as I broke my leg. We both knew that I was as good as dead. Thinking quickly, they devised a plan to get Simpson off the mountain. They each had 150 feet of rope, and so they tied the ropes together, and Yates, bracing himself by sitting in the snow, would lower Simpson down. When Simpson reached the end of the rope, the 150-foot rope, he would give Yates enough rope to unclip one rope, by getting his weight off of the rope and then thread the other through the belay plates because the rope was getting between the belay device. Does that make sense? So there's 150 feet, a big knot, Mm -hmm. 150 feet more Yates at the top. Yes. So he's lowering that first 150 feet. And when he gets to the knot, he has to unhook it and hook it in again on the other side of the knot because otherwise he can't lower the rope any further. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was working actually pretty well, pretty decently. Yates was really going quickly because he was like, we got to get out of here as quickly right. as possible. And unfortunately, Simpson was, you know, he was sliding backwards. He was using his ice axes to slow him down and mm-hmm. just sliding on his belly. And of course, his leg kept bumping into things, bumping into things. And then, of course, it was excruciatingly painful. Yeah. It sounds awful. I mean, all of this sounds awful, including the climb. I'm going to level with you. (laughs) But especially the fact that he broke his leg so badly. Yeah. It almost couldn't have been worse. Unless he had a head injury or something like that. Right. Um, Because at least he was somewhat capable. He had the use of his arms. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because Simpson said that no, no mountain rescue had ever been completed in this fashion. Like, it was definitely something they just... They had to come up with because they had no other resources. And unfortunately, Yates had to keep a strong head and ignore the cries of Simpson in order to make progress. And the weather was terrible. Wind chill up to minus 80 degrees. They had no water and they were worried about digging a snow cave because they didn't want to get stuck up there. Simpson said, quote, I probably lost a quart of blood, almost a liter internally. I was going down as fast as Yates could lower me. Every 150 feet, the knot joined our two ropes and would come up and hit Simon's friction device. That was my signal to get my weight off the rope. Simon would unclip, put the knot on the other side of the device, give three tugs, and start lowering me again. After an hour, we were 300 300 feet, or 91 meters down. We only had to do it 10 more times to get to the bottom of the mountain, but we didn't realize we were in line with this ice cliff sticking out of the slope. At 9.30 p.m., Simon lowered me off the edge, and I came to a stop with about 100 feet of air and the shadow of a covered crevasse beneath me. So on a side note, I read differing accounts about the distance 
that Simpson was suspended above this crevasse. This account, Simpson said 100 feet. Others reported 80 or 50 feet. But either way, he was suspended a ways away from the glacier, and he knew that there was no way he was going to make it to the bottom. He wasn't fully lowered all the way down at that point. Up above, Yates felt a significant amount of weight on the rope and assumed that Simpson was going over steeper ground. Simpson had hit a steeper bit of ground. So as he had been getting lower down, he felt that he was going faster and faster, and he felt a hard surface of ice, and he could tell that it was getting steeper, and he was screaming and screaming and screaming, but there was no way that Yates could hear him. So that's when he flew off this cliff and was just dangling there. Oh, my God. By the rope, which is not long enough to get all the way down. Mm -hmm. Simpson realized he wouldn't make it. He said, I felt completely hopeless and really angry. I just hung on the rope and waited to die. So in terms of friction devices, a friction device is basically a belay device, which acts as a brake on the climbing rope by applying friction to it. So this is why his partner, Yates, was able to slowly lower him down without being pulled off the mountain. Because remember, Yates is not hooked to anything Mm -hmm. but Simpson. Right. He's just just sitting. to each other. Yeah. He's just sitting on a little snow stool and using the belay device to slowly lower him down or quickly lower him down. So again, Yates said that usually a climber uses a mountain as an anchor. In this case, he was Simpson's anchor. And within a short time, given that he was holding all of Simpson's weight, he would eventually plummet to his death, killing them both. Because the snow underneath him is not solid. Yeah, so it's a time bomb. It's a time bomb. Simpson, on the end of the rope, tried to use his ice axes to self-arrest, but he could not reach the wall. So he's just dangling dangling. in the void. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. He tried to climb up the rope with a pressic, which is the smaller rope. You tie a knot in it and you hook it onto the other rope. You can stick your feet in it and then slide it up the larger rope. He had one of the pressics on the climbing rope and then he dropped the other one. No. Yep. Then he was like, this is it. There's nothing I can do. The story is just one thing after another. I know. Simon is up above, sitting in this sugary snow seat. He had to make a decision to save his life or perish with his climbing partner. He struggled with this decision, and it must have felt like forever. He was sitting there for an hour and a half before he executed what he knew was a necessary measure. He took out his Swiss Army knife from his rucksack. Cut him off. Which was difficult, since his hands were so cold. He cut the rope. Yates stated in an article by Back to the Brink, quote, it wasn't a great decision. It was a pragmatic act made in the moment. I didn't have the luxury of moralizing. You don't when you're making a potentially life or death decisions. So I don't see it as an ethical dilemma. Time of the cut was 7.30 p.m. Simpson went for a free fall. He hit the roof of the glacier and fell right through it. Once he hit the ice below, he slid into the crevasse. He peered up from the icy den and estimated that he went 70 feet within the crevasse, and he thought that Yates was long gone. So in his mind... Yeah, he didn't even know that he was cut loose. No, he thought the reason that he was where he was was because his partner flew off the mountain. 
Yeah, that makes sense. At he, this point, it's amazing that he's alive through all of this. Yeah, it's amazing he didn't injure something else in this fall, too. So in his mind, he's thinking, if I pull on this rope, Yates' body will land above the crevasse, and he could use it as a counterweight to climb up from where he was seated. Mm-hmm. So he begins pulling on the rope, pulling on the rope, pulling on the rope, and then all of a sudden it flopped into the crevasse with him, and that's when he realized that the rope had been cut. Can you imagine how you would feel in that moment? Well, I think it's different, though, because their perspectives, being climbers, are not what, you know, they're not thinking the way that we're thinking. The way he's thinking is, Yeats is still alive. Thank Mm -hmm. God he's still alive. He narrowly missed a 3,000-foot drop just a few feet from where he went into that crevasse. Mm -hmm. If he had just gone over, like, five feet in one direction, he would have been a goner. Up above, the weather was terrible and incredibly cold. Yates created a snow cave and hunkered down for the night. It was pretty cold, even in the snow cave. Yates was overcome with thirst that night, and this was his predominant memory. And that and the terror about what had happened to his partner. He struggled with the decision, and he stated that Joe was dead. I might as well have put a gun to his head and shot him. I should feel guilty. I don't. I hated the place for what it made me do. In the morning of the fifth day, Yates descended onto the glacier and realized or assumed that Simpson had fallen into the crevasse, which from above appeared bottomless. He stood at the top and looked in, and he he yelled for Joe, but there was no response. He carefully made his way down the glacier, avoiding crevasses as he went, And this is extremely dangerous to do by yourself. It's dangerous either way, apparently. Yeah. He was wondering how he'd break the news to Simpson's family about his death. And he was wondering how he was going to bring this news to the climbing community. And he felt guilty. And he was thinking about what other better story he could tell people about what happened to him. He didn't want to. He didn't want to be honest about it because obviously it puts him in a potentially bad light. When he arrived at camp, he disclosed the event as it unfolded to Richard Hawking, who was still waiting at the base camp. At one point, Richard had thought about leaving because he was waiting and waiting and waiting. Oh, yeah. And he had this gut feeling that something bad and unexpected had happened to his friends. Yates didn't feel judged by Hawking. For the events that transpired, he ended up being honest about what happened to Simpson. Hawking wanted to leave right away, but it was apparent that Yates was in no condition to do so. He needed to regain his strength. And during this time, they burned Simpson's clothing as a farewell to their friend. Back in time and back in the crevasse, Simpson was hopeful that since Yates was not dead, as he discovered when the rope fell into the crevasse, And he thought maybe he would come find him. And also he was, like I said, he was relieved that Yates was alive. Being that it was pitch black in the crevasse, he realized that Yates would never be able to see him. He started screaming for him every five minutes around 9.30 a.m. on June 9th. So he went in on June 8th into the Mm -hmm. crevasse. 
The morning of June 9th, he realized that Yates was not going to find him. He had struggled and was very worried that he may perish in the crevasse and he was broken down with emotion. I mean, he was just screaming all night long. Yeah. Low on water, in pain, in the cold. He was just terrified. <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> He's basically in um, a coffin of ice. Mm-hmm. So the crevasse was a Bergschrund, and it's also called a Rime. So this isn't a normal crevasse. It's at a junction of a steep slope and a glacier. It's formed by the downward flow and rotational movement of the glacier, and it looks like a right angle. They can have a depth of up to 500 feet. There was no going up. It was too slippery. And also, he's got a leg injury. Mm-hmm. Simpson tried and failed at that attempt. He knew that there was just no way it was going to be possible. So instead of going up... Don't tell me he went down. He went down. Oh, my gosh. On the rope, using his belay device. He didn't even put a knot at the end of the rope because he decided there's no point in climbing back up the rope. Mm-hmm. There's no point in climbing up the crevasse because... There was no way he could get out that direction. Right. So he was just thinking in his mind, I can either go down or I can just sit here and die, which might take days. Right. He was very scared, but he had to do what he had to do. So Simpson lowered himself 80 feet further into the crevasse. It was shaped like an hourglass, 150 feet below the surface. He looked down and there was solid snow. He thought it was the bottom of the crevasse. 50 feet away, there was a slope headed up. And at the top of that slope, there was light shining like a beam. A choke point from avalanche activity that must have broken the glacier open. This was the way out he was looking for. He knew that he could climb the slope, which was 65 degrees. He started crawling towards the light. Because remember, he can't walk. Mm Mm-hmm. Then he starts to hear things breaking away beneath him. Uh, And this is when he realized that he was not on the bottom of the crevasse and he was not crawling on a solid floor. Oh my gosh. So I think what happened was an avalanche came down onto the glacier, Mm -hmm. broke a hole in it, and then filled up part of the crevasse. And that's the part of the crevasse Mm -hmm. that he he was was able to... Yes. And of course he's terrified because he knows that if he breaks through, that's it for Mm -hmm. sure. That's it. He climbed really, really slowly, and then once he got to the slope, he did a hopping motion on his good left leg. And it was a bright and sunny day, and he just laughed with the relief, and he just laid there in the sunshine. I was like, oh my God, I made it. And when he got to the surface of the glacier, he looked at Simon's rope, and he realized that he was all alone again, and no one was coming for him. And in order to make it back to the base camp, he'd have to travel a mile and a half, on crevassed glacier, then six and a half miles of moraines and rocks. Just when he thought it was going to get better, it actually got worse. Right. He only got through one obstacle and he only has one leg still. Yeah. Yep. So I just wanted to mention that at the point at which Joe got out of the crevasse and he started thinking about getting back, he had all of this, this huge ice field a bunch of glacier to go over still. And so what he was doing is climbing on his belly and using his ice axes to just pull himself along. And then he was fortunate enough to find Simon Yates's footprints. And so he was able to follow the direction that Simon had gone before him. So he called it a lifeline. But then after the first day, 
the wind came in and it blew all of those tracks away. It was probably a good start. Yeah. And what I, are the chances that they were even still there by the time that he that came he got, to them? Yeah. yeah. And, and then when he got off the snow and he got onto the rocks, it probably was another one of those false, um, I don't know, like false completions, almost like a false summit because he thought he was there. And then you're like, oh, I still have six miles to go <laughs> over rock and dirt. And he couldn't stand up and walk. So he's crawling himself over these huge boulders. Mm-hmm. Just crazy. I can't believe it. Um, it's pretty intense. He said, quote, when you're trying to survive, the last thing you need is emotion. It's a waste of energy. Part of me was pragmatic, thinking about how far I could go, what state my body was in, and how little food I had. My conclusion was, you won't make it. But I thought, if you die here, you'll be buried in the snow and disappear forever. No one will ever know what happened to you. I crawled for the next three and a half days. When you're alone for a long time, no data coming in, no conversations, nothing to read or see, your mind drifts. I would think I'd rested for five minutes and I'd look at my cheap, crappy watch and 45 minutes had gone by. I went, right, I'm going to get to that crevasse in 20 minutes. Then I'm going to get to the red rock in 20 minutes. It created structure and discipline. Sometimes I beat the target and I was made up. Other times I'd lose and I'd be pissed off from the big picture of you're completely bleep. (laughs) (laughs) On the last night, I started to fail. I was probably 10 minutes walk from the base, but it took me nine hours. I was in and out of consciousness and experiencing hallucinations, some enjoyable, others weird. (laughs) I stopped looking at my watch, so I lost all sense of purpose. I was probably dying. I shouted, hoping that Simon and Richard would hear me. They did, but they thought I was a dog. Why would it occur to them that it was me? I'd been dead for four days now. That was the point where it was completely crushing. In a funny way, it was confirmation of what I'd thought when I'd started crawling. You were not getting out of this. So it was four days since he went in the crevasse. Four days, yeah. Wow. It was a lonely place to be. I remember debating whether to get in my sleeping bag. But I thought if I did that, I wouldn't get out of it again. I thought that if I crawled down to the riverbed, someone would definitely find my body. I wasn't expecting to meet anybody, but just crawl to the end of the end game to die there. It was quite horrible. I inadvertently crawled through our campsite latrine area and got covered in human feces. Oh, human shit really does stink. But it acted like a smelling salts and suddenly I knew where I was within 100 yards or 91 meters of where the tents had been. I assumed Simon and Richard had left, so I sat there feeling sorry for myself. I knew this is where it would end. But I hadn't considered that Simon also needed to recover and was in no rush to get home to tell all of our friends he just killed me, end quote. So now back to camp. On the same night, after a day of rest, having decided to leave the next day, Yates and Hawking climbed into their sleeping bags. Hawking said, quote, I woke up not knowing why, he recalls, and was aware of the strange atmosphere. I could hear the wind howling outside the tent and started hearing something, end quote. Yates got up and immediately started running towards the stream bed about 300 yards away. Yates stated, quote, and there was Joe. 
I couldn't completely believe it because of this eerie night and the state he was in. He was a ghost-like figure. He thanked me for trying to get him down the mountain and for all I'd done up to the point where I'd cut the rope. And he said, I'd have done the same. On becoming reunited with Yates, Simpson said, quote, I saw a red and yellow dome-like thing that I thought was a spaceship. Then these white beams came out of it, and I heard Simon's voice. In an article from Vault, Hawking remembers Joe asking for his pants. Quote, we had to explain that we had burned his trousers, which oh my made God. him quite angry. Oh my God. <laughs> that, brought, <laughs> that brought me back into life, realizing it was the same old Joe back again. End quote. Simpson stated that, quote, people have this idea of what survival is about, but the reality is that it's brutal. You get destroyed on several levels. Physically, you're not putting any fuel in, and eventually you just stop working. On a psychological level, you go through all this stuff that really bleeps with your head. You don't only learn that you're strong, but that you're incredibly weak too. You're breaking down all the time. I had accepted the situation, so it was a shock when Simon and Richard suddenly appeared. I just collapsed. Simon had slumped into camp at 1 a.m. on June 11. In the morning, his team, again, had been planning on leaving. He was very fortunate to make it out alive. But what we may fail to consider is that once found, he wasn't quote-unquote out of the woods because they're still kind of in a remote area. Even at the base camp is what mm-hmm. you're saying? Yep. He'd lost 35% of his body weight. So three hours after Simon found Joe, he put Joe on a mule. And they got the heck out of Dodge. He had to ride on that mule for two days. And then he had to ride in a pickup truck for 23 hours. He mentioned that the mule walked into everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he made it to the hospital 11 days after he broke his leg. Yeah, and it sounds like the injuries were pretty bad. So to wait that long probably isn't ideal. It definitely isn't ideal. Definitely is not ideal. The other thing is he could have easily gotten some kind of infection. I mean, really, truly, wouldn't that have been just a bummer? Like, oh, you made it all that way? Upon returning home, Yates received some backlash when the story hit the news. People criticized his choice to cut the rope. Yates reported in an article for the Courier UK that he had support and sympathy from the climbing community who were more likely to understand that he had no other choice in the matter. Yeah, I mean, in contemplating that, it's either one of you or both of you. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty clear, it's a clear decision. I'm sure that there's a lot of emotion involved and I can't imagine that it was easy. That's why it took him an hour and a half to finally do it. Yeah. And it's not something that he probably took lightly anyway. You know, that's something that would screw with you for the rest of your life if you get out and you killed your friend. Well, the other thing is when they had tried to make the decision about how to get him down, um, Simpson thought for sure that Yates was just going to leave him at that point, not even try to lower him at all. Yeah. So Simpson had been supportive of Yates the whole time, and he always defended Simon And acknowledged in an interview that he, quote, put his life on the line and that the paradox is that by cutting the rope, he put me in a position where I could save myself. Joe said, would I have cut the rope in Simon's situation? Without a doubt. Simpson tells the Red Bulletin, 
My only criticism is that it took him more than an hour to remember the only knife we had was in the top pack of his rucksack. The only knife we had was in the top pocket of his rucksack. The real question is, if it had been in my rucksack and I could feel Simon being pulled down, would I have cut the rope to save him? I don't think I would. I gathered after reading a number of articles on this topic that Joe and Simon are not really close friends anymore. After this climb, their lives kind of went in different directions. Yates continued on with mountaineering. Right after the climb up Sierra Grande, he went to the European Alps and climbed the north face of the Eiger. He's gone on many expeditions and first ascents, including Leila Peak in Nemeka, Pakistan, and ex- expeditions to Cordillera, Darwin, and Chile. Simpson had six surgeries on his leg. Within two years, he was back to climbing. He climbed Paterno in Nepal, and he broke his left ankle during that climb. Oh, my gosh. He also made six attempts to climb the north face of the Eiger in Switzerland from 2000 to 2003, but all attempts were aborted due to bad weather, unfortunately. His book, Touching the Void, came out three years after the climb in 1988, and in 2003, it was adapted into a movie, like a docudrama, and in 2018, it was turned into a play. He has made a career out of motivational speaking. He also wrote The Game of Ghosts and Walking the Wrong Side of the Grass in 2018. So I think in some ways the reason that they didn't remain close is because Simon Yates really was just starting his climbing career and he didn't have any major injuries and he just he just kept going. Right. And it was different for Joe Simpson because he had something that was limiting physically in terms of his ability to climb. And also he had all this stuff with the book and the movie and the play. And, and he's basically a public figure now. Yeah. And so he can, he's speaking and doing all this other stuff and it's sort of made a transition point from climbing to something else. It's still incredible that he kept going after that. It's so hard to believe. And you know what I think it comes down to is the, filling the time with an activity and a small goal. And we talked about this before with one of our cases, Mm -hmm. but just saying, I'm making it to that rock. Now I'm making it to that next rock and just, you know, giving yourself small achievable goals. I think that's why he made it. Yeah. So remember that when you're stuck in a crevasse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not when he was doing it. He was doing it when he got out of the crevasse. Well, that's true. But in any relative situation. Exactly. Small goals, people. Small goals. That's yeah. what we're saying. Small achievable goals. <laughs> Even in your day-to-day life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and um, have a good one. Yeah. Stay alive until next week. Bye. Bye.